A moment's prayer before the sermon. Let us pray. May the words that I speak now and the thoughts and the feelings that we all now experience be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Many years ago now, when the Irish Troubles were at their worst, I was told a story which may be apocryphal, but has that ring of truth about it, of a visitor from another country visiting Northern Ireland and being shown round. And, of course, he was shown a very divided community with armed police and troops, British troops, he was shown the defended police stations. He was shown the murals on the walls. And everything, of course, was Protestant this and Catholic that. And eventually, this visitor from another country, who was not a particularly religious person, could take no more, and said, everything seems to be down to Protestants and Catholics. Aren't there any good atheists around this place? <laughs> to which the answer came back quick as a flash, yes, but they're either Protestant atheists or Catholic atheists. <laughs> yesterday I was, yesterday morning, I was at a meeting in Cambridge where I'd been asked to go and speak because of my experience in Rome for, and Italy for three years, uh, because not much recognized here unless you read the Methodist Recorder from one from front to back carefully. But in June of this year, Pope Francis visited a Protestant church in Turin, a Waldensian church, and the Waldensians were a particular group of Reformed Protestants, and the Waldensian church is in union union with the Methodist Church in Italy, so these were our friends and colleagues and partners. The Waldensians began about the same time as the Franciscans began, but whereas the Franciscans just about managed to hang into the Catholic Church, the Waldensians, by historical accident really, fell out. They were both very similar, with a great concern for the poor, for preaching. Waldo, like Francis, was a rich person, a powerful person, who took on a vow of poverty and gathered a group of people who took on a vow of poverty around him and they traveled around the countryside preaching, living with the poor and helping the poor. All these things are very suspect to church authorities then and possibly still now. Discuss. Um, and the Rodensians whose homelands are in the high alpine valleys in the north of Italy, going up to the French border, were for centuries hunted by the Inquisition, executed when caught, or when times were good, they were allowed to worship in public, provided they only did it over 700 meters above sea level. Until 1850, actually, when the creation of the secular state of Italy released the grip of the Vatican on things in Italy, 
and the Waldensians won their religious freedom and civic freedom two weeks before the Jews got theirs. Which is why for many European Protestants, secularism is a very good thing. Because it's what brought them religious freedom. It's very interesting, you go to different places, words take on different meanings because of different histories. Pope Francis went to visit this, uh, the Waldensians come from the north of Italy and they, they're all over Italy and now the rest of the world. And there's a great number of them who went with Italian emigres from the north of Italy in Argentina and they come from the part of Italy that Pope Francis's Italian family come from and of course he was bishop in Argentina so he knew them there. So when visiting Turin he went to this major Waldensian church in Turin and in the course of that meeting there being Pope Francis asked forgiveness from the Waldensians and the Methodists for all the terrible things that the Catholic Church had done to them over the centuries. And they were deeply moved, but they're also not sure what to do. Because how can you forgive what wasn't done to you personally, but was done to people who are now dead. How can you ask forgiveness for things from the past? And also, as one Waldensian minister said to me a few years ago, uh, he said, one danger we're in, if I was self-critical, he said, self-critical of the Waldensians, uh, I would say, we've stopped thinking. So now, if the Vatican's for it, we're automatically against it. If the Vatican's against it, we're automatically for it. Whatever it is, we don't actually think about the issue itself. Because that's who we are. We're against the Vatican. And that is a rich tradition. But it's a trap. <coughs> Because if you can't give and receive grace and forgiveness, if you can't say to people, let's leave that behind, you're going to stay trapped with the memories of the past. And of course what this is touching on is all sorts of things to do about the way even faithful Christians ended up divided. It was very interesting talking with a group of people, including Roe Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury in Cambridge, about these things yesterday, because, of course, British religious history is caught up in all this as well. One of the other things that happened in my time in Rome was we dedicated a plaque on the side of the church, the English language Methodist church in Rome, to a man called Gianluigi Pascale, Gianluigi Pascale was a Waldensian minister in the 16th century who was one of the first people to translate the Holy Scriptures, the, the Greek New Testament, into Italian, which wasn't allowed by the Catholic Church at the time. He was a noted biblical scholar. He was eventually betrayed by a landowner into the hands of the authorities, thence to the Inquisition, thence to the Rome, and he was executed just at the end of the Ponte Sant'Angelo Bridge in the piazza which the Methodist Church now exists in half of. The Methodist Church has been built there since, obviously. 
So by accident, because I don't think anyone knew at the time, but by accident, there's a Methodist church on the spot where this Waldensian was martyred. And we put up a plaque to remember this man. And a colleague I worked with from the Vatican very gently asked when I told him about it, he said, is it all right if I come along? And the Waldensians had never thought of inviting anyone from the Catholic, from the Catholic Church to this. And they were moved when he turned up. A Monsignor in full rig. A week later, I was invited to the Roman Catholic Seminary in Rome, which is run by the English Bishops' Conference of England and Wales, the English Catholic, British Catholic Church, or one of them. They have a theological college in Rome, and elite Catholic priests from England and Wales go there to train, and then they spend part of their time as Vatican officials and part of their time as church leaders in this country. And once a year, they have a major feast, which I was invited to, for Martyrs' Day. And the Martyrs, of course, because this is the oldest British institution outside the British Isles, and it goes back to the time when this college was training Jesuits, who in the time of Elizabeth I came to this country secretly to look after Catholic congregations and were hung, drawn, and quartered if they were caught. So within a week, I had a Protestant memorial to people martyred by Catholics, and a Catholic memorial to people martyred by Protestants. And this country is the way it is the Church of England is the way it is, and Methodism grew out of the Church of England, it's the way it is, and the Catholic Church in this country takes the shape it does because of that history. And as the rector of the Catholic Theological College said in preaching a sermon on Martyrs' Day, he said to the students, we need to remember those who, knowing what they were going to, left Rome and walked across Europe to be smuggled secretly into England, they were English, knowing what would happen to them, to bear witness to their understanding of Christ and the faith. We need to remember that. But we need to remember that for the number of Catholics who were martyred in England is as nothing to the number of Protestants martyred under Queen Mary <coughs> in the name of Catholicism, which I found deeply moving. We are who we are because of this history. And our history is one where faith is so important to us that again and again we divide on it and we're prepared to kill for it. But that's really the outcropping of a spiritual and psychological tendency that is deep within us. I think it goes back to what we would call original sin. It's the way we human beings are like, and it's being pointed to in those two readings that you heard earlier. 
writing to the early Christian churches, the letter of James talks about how tendencies to be selfish, to put it in modern language, tendencies to greed and ambition and so on, start to reduce a behavior which is motivated by ambition. And that starts to become wanting what other people have got and being prepared to get it from them by any means. And it starts to produce discord and division and disunity in the family of the church. Protestantism has been a great thing, but one of the things which has characterized it is that people develop and the church forms, and it has very often a strong leader, and then someone disagrees with the strong leader, and there's a row, and then another bunch goes off, and a second church forms out of the first church with another strong leader, and they don't talk to each other afterwards. Protestantism is full of dividing churches. And it goes back to this human tendency. And the writer of the James is trying to get people to say, you might not be people who go around murdering each other. You might not go around stealing from each other and other things. But the tendencies which lead some people to do that are in all of you. And you need to bring those tendencies into the light of God. So that reading that you heard ended on the phrase, submit yourselves to God, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. In other words, let God deal with the muck inside you. Because God can deal with it better than we can. Because God can cope with the way we are better than we can cope with the way we are. And what you can't admit to yourself, you can't admit to God. And if you can't admit it to God, you can't accept forgiveness for it. And you can't be released from it. You're not allowing yourself to be forgiven and transformed and released. And not all of us go around killing people for our faith or doing great evil to each other for our faith. But some human beings do, and the things which result in that happening, those things are deep within us. The gospel story that you heard was Jesus, I get the sense often, tearing his hair out about his disciples. And the great thing about the disciples, if, if you were choosing people as role models to found an institution on that would spread over the whole world and change the whole world, would you choose this 12? Because they were like us. But he did choose this 12 and they are like us, and that's hope.
But Jesus knows that these disciples have tendencies within them. In the middle of Mark's Gospel, Jesus has started to explain to them that what it means for him to be God's anointed agent in the world, what it means to be God's representative, what it means to be God in human form, what it means to be God's Son and Messiah in the world, what it means that he's going to be barbarically executed. It's going to take him to the cross. And that's not the sort of thing that a glorious, powerful God is like, surely. That's not their picture of God in God's ways at all. They want a big, powerful God on a throne who will zap their enemies for them. And that's what God's love is like, says Jesus. This is what being God in your life, in your society, is all about, says Jesus. And they're not really understanding. And as they walk along on this occasion that you heard this morning, he picks up on the fact that they're arguing amongst themselves. And the discussion stroke argument that they're having with each other is about which of them, the disciples, are the leaders? Which of them are more important than the others? What's the pecking order amongst the disciples? Who's got positions of status? Who's got positions of power? Which of them are the important ones? And Jesus says, If being God in human form involves allowing myself to be treated in such a way that I am barbarically executed, then if you become my followers, you too must be the servant of the rest of the world. Being the servant of God means being the servant of the rest of the world. It involves not worrying about being the most important, but treating other people as more important than yourself, just like you treat God as being more important than yourself. Not expecting other people to love you before you will <coughs> love them but loving them first even when they don't seem to love you because that's what God does to us. That's the love of God that Jesus shows. And to make the point, Jesus takes a child and puts the child in the middle of them. Now children were not romanticized at the time of Jesus. As soon as possible, they helped look after the family they were put to work. They were the ones who were given all the dirty jobs, the awful jobs to do. 
They were simply told what to do and not allowed to have an opinion or anything. And Jesus says, you need to be the last of the least of all and the servant of all. You need to welcome children. You need to welcome each other like children. If you welcome a child, treating even this apparently insignificant person as someone really special, if you treat each other like that, you'll find you've welcomed me, he says. And if you've welcomed me like that, you'll find that God has slipped into your life and you welcome God without realizing it. And maybe, just maybe, if as Christians, in our local congregations and our community and as wider churches spread through this country and as even wider churches spread over, if the Christian church in all its parts could start to live a bit more like that, what an incredible gift we would be to a war-torn and fractured world. <laughs>